Well, the story is going to be redundant for some of you, but many of you are new in the last year or two, so I'm going to share it again. If you've been here for a few years, you heard me share this coming back from sabbatical, but two years ago, this church gave me a three-month sabbatical. Thank you, church family. That's such a gift for your pastors. And what I did the first week of my sabbatical, I went up north to a hermitage, this little cabin in the woods in my favorite place in the whole world to connect with God. And I wanted to do some soul work. I wanted to like hash out with God. There was some sin in my own life. There, there was sin in my own life, no longer, right? It's all been hashed out and worked out. I'm kidding. I have plenty of sin in my own life. All of us do. And my plan in going up to this sabbatical hermitage, a silent prayer retreat, was to just spend time worshiping God, repenting of sin, letting him work me over. And so I left my house. I'm driving up, listening to worship music, some silence and some music, trying to prepare my heart. And I pull into this place. It's called Clearwater Presbyterian Forest, two hours north of here. I pull into a hermitage. And here's me pulling in. This is a live footage of me pulling in. There's a deer going in front of the hermitage. Just perfect, peaceful. Pull my car in. I park and I walk into the hermitage. This is the space that I was staying for a couple days. It's quiet. It's peaceful. And I was planning on fasting so there was no food, no distraction. It's just me and God, right? So I walk through this lonely, quiet cabin. I'm like, okay, there's no people. There's no food. God's here. I walk through this next portion of the cabin through this screened-in porch where there's a fire. I'm like, all right, I can envision myself sitting here for quite a while, having some good time with God. And I walk down the path to the lake, walk out to that dock, and I sit down on the dock. All right, God, I'm here for three days. Me and you. What should we do? What do you want to say to me? God, what do you want from me? Was my question for him. And I heard God's voice, and not audible, but like, if, if, you, if you spend time with Jesus, you learn to discern God's voice when he impresses things on your heart. And I'm like, God, what, what do you want from me? And I heard God say, Andrew, what do you want? I'm like, wait a minute, that must be my flesh, because God doesn't ask us what we want, right? There's this weird moment, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe he's just like, Maybe he's getting me to process something, like a good counselor, like a good friend, like a good parent. And so I sat there on the dock, and I'm like, God, if I'm honest, I don't want to fast. I want to eat, and I want to fish. That right, right off of that dock, and there's a kayak and a canoe there for me to use, right off that dock, back when I was a kid, I used to catch crappies out there, and it's been 15 years since I caught a crappie. I want to go see if they're out there, and I want to eat brats over a fire. But I'm here for you, so let's fast. And God was like, why don't you just go fish? Why don't you run to town and get brats? And so here's me for the next three days. <laughs> Catching crappies, hadn't done that in years, and cooking brats over a fire. See, I, like many of you, I'm more familiar in coming to Jesus as Lord and I'm more comfortable coming to Jesus as Lord. Because he's holy, he's other, he's worthy of our praise and worship and adoration. He requires repentance and he elicits worship, absolutely. That is Jesus, he is Lord. We're going to see in our text today over and over again, his followers refer to him as Lord. But Jesus, he's not just Lord, he's also friend. And these three days at that hermitage was transformative for me because Jesus, the lover of my soul, the Lord of my life, the master who I serve, reminded me that his word also says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. 
and I want to enjoy time with you and spend time with you. Our relationship is just that. It's a relationship. It's not a religious duty. So while it's good, Andrew, and this is God massaging this into my soul, while it's good, Andrew, for you to fast and to pray and to repent and to be on your face before me, that's a good thing. It's just as good for you sometimes to feast with me and to have fun with me and to just enjoy time with me because I am your friend, not just your Lord. I'm both. And so God invited me onto the canoe, and he and I caught crappies together, and it was this transformative time for my soul. That's the big idea for this morning. Jesus is the friend that we want, and he's the Lord that we need. Jesus is both the friend that we want and the Lord that we need. We're going to be in John chapter 11 this morning, so grab a Bible, open it up, John chapter 11, and we're going to go through through verses 1 through 44. It's a long text. I'm not going to have you stand and read through the whole thing like I often do. We're just going to kind of walk through it together this morning. John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Matt last week preached the end of chapter 10 about Jesus as the good shepherd. And, and actually the whole way that this text was kind of framed for me is last Sunday, as Matt was preaching, he pointed out that in chapter 10, we see so clearly that Jesus is both God and man. God and man. And, and Matt asks us some questions about coming to Jesus as God and coming to Jesus as man. And as Matt was preaching, it could, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. Again, I was reminded of this lesson that I learned on sabbatical, that I often come to Jesus as Lord, as God, but I rarely come to Jesus as man, as friend. And so I actually wrote that down last week. I was like, my biggest struggle is coming to Jesus as friend. It continues to be. I was like, maybe that's just a message for me. And then somebody from our church came up to me afterward, and he was like, oh, you know what God told me during the sermon? Is that I struggled to come to him as friend. I'm great at coming to him as Lord, but I struggled to come to him as friend. I'm like, no kidding, I wrote down that exact same thing. And then this week, I, I dive into John chapter 11, and I see Jesus being interacted with as both friend and Lord by his followers. And so I'm praying, praying, asking God what he wants to draw out of this text, John chapter 11, and there's a hundred different things that we could draw out of this text, that we should draw out of this text. But for me, and confirmed among some of our church community, is that we collectively struggle to come to Jesus as friend. We're more comfortable, more familiar in coming to him as Lord. And so chapter 10 kind of wraps that up. Jesus is the good shepherd, us as the sheep, but he's God and man. He's approachable, yet he's holy and he's other. And then we pick it up in John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, and, and you will be familiar in a couple of weeks, actually we'll see in John chapter 12, is when Mary anoints Jesus' feet with her hair. And so some people get stuck on this, like, why, why is John referring to it here in chapter 11, but it doesn't happen until chapter 12. And what you need to know is that John isn't writing a chronology. He is writing the story of Jesus' ministry. He wants his readers to see and believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus transforms lives. He, he actually gives us his thesis, and we've looked at this some, but those of you who are newer, this thesis in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, it says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's very purpose, all of the stories that he writes, all of the miracles that he writes, all of the themes that he zeroes in on in this gospel are intended to help its readers see and believe. When we started studying the book of John, we talked about behold, right? We have to behold the glory and the goodness and the approachability and the relatability of God in Jesus Christ. And through that, we believe, we trust, we have faith. So that's John's point in writing. And that's good to note here in verses 1 and 2 that this isn't like, that's not a critical point of the text that it's out of order. John's point isn't to be in order. It's like sometimes you tell a story and sometimes it's not about like a thematic, it's not about a chronological ordering of events. Eh, Some of you it is. Brittany and I work this way. We get home in the evening and usually she's like, how was your day? And I was like, I'm like, good. I'm like, how was your day? And she's like, good. Well, maybe. Sometimes it's bad. It all depends, right? It's not always good. That's just the Minnesota way to say it. But for her, it's like, well, I got up, I did this, I did this, I did this. And generally, Brittany's stories and the recounting of her day are chronological, event by event. Mine, I'm like, oh, I can't do that chronological retelling of my day. But give me time, and over the night, I will tell you all the important things, and it may not be chronological. That's what John is doing here. He's, he's giving us this picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so let's keep going. Verse 3. It says, so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. A couple things to note here in these verses. Verse 3, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That word love there is, is phileo. It means intimate friendship. So this big idea of Jesus as Lord and friend, we even see it right there in verse 3, right? They come to him, Lord. And this word, Lord, it means master, rabbi, teacher. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they see Jesus as somebody greater than them who they ought to follow and submit to. They're disciples of Jesus. They're following him. They're submitting to his authority and leadership and guidance. So they come to him, they approach him saying, Lord... And even notice this word that they use, he whom you love, phileo, your friend, this intimate friendship that you have. We begin to see Jesus' love for this family here in this text. And his love for his followers isn't just agape. Agape love is a love that we often talk about in church, like sacrificial, unconditional love where you lay down your life for another person. His love is agape, and that's actually brought up here in this text, but his love is also phileo. It's familiar. It's an affinity. It's the type of love that has shared interest, laughter, long and lingering meals, casual conversations. Jesus with his friends, sometimes he wants to have casual conversations. It's okay for you to be you in the presence of Jesus. It's believed in church tradition that Jesus had fridge rights at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. Maybe not fridge rights. I don't think they had fridges back then. But like the type of relationship where he could just wander in. You know those type of friends? You can just go into their house and whatever food is in the fridge, maybe you don't have those type of friends. We need those type of friends. Work hard for those type of friendships. This is the type of friendship that Jesus has with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. 
this intimate friendship. It's this relationship that friendship is made out of, not just worship, not just reverence, not just fear. So the sisters sent to him, right, their brother Lazarus. He's become ill, and they, they know that Jesus has power. They've seen him doing miracles. They know that he is other than they. They're, they're believing that he is the sent one of God. And so when their brother Lazarus gets ill, they're like, Jesus can help. So they send to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill, assuming Jesus loves Lazarus. He cares. He's going to come. But when Jesus heard it, and this is a fascinating response. He says, this illness does not lead to death. However, if you're familiar with the story, it does lead to death. It leads to physical death. Jesus wasn't speaking here strictly about the physical, though. He's, he's doing what he often does in the Gospel of John. He's using a physical reality to point out a deeper spiritual need that you and I have and that his followers in the first century had. So he says, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. And so the second part of verse 4, the, you know, the first part is like, well, why did he say that it doesn't lead to death when it does lead to death? Again, it's to set them up, to prepare them, that this physical situation is to bring them deeper into a spiritual reality. But then he, he says, it is for the glory of God. And we have to wrestle with that. Sickness for the glory of God? Illness for the glory of God? Physical death for the glory of God? Yes, this is the reality of our text today. Because as Lord, Jesus has an eternal perspective and he knows that sometimes sickness and suffering has a greater impact on the eternal state of our souls than relief of suffering. Paul Carter, a commentator on this passage, uh, thinking about this passage, he says, Jesus was always asking the question, how can God be most glorified in this situation? Which is a slightly different question than, how can I relieve the most suffering in this situation? Jesus could have spared Mary, Martha, and Lazarus a lot of suffering if he had gone to Bethany right away, but he didn't. Because that wasn't his primary concern. His primary concern was the glory of God, not the removal of suffering. We need to stop and wrestle with this because in most of our minds, the alleviation of human suffering is the ultimate concern. That's the highest value. So this story is hard for us to get our heads around. And it doesn't get much easier because we're told in the next verse that it was precisely because Jesus loved them that he delayed his coming. I love what Paul Carter says there in that text. In that, in that commentary on this text. How can God be most glorified in this situation? Much different question than how can I relieve suffering in this situation? And isn't that the rub for many of us? And Jesus goes on to, to John goes on to describe what happens here as Jesus tells us uh, that this is all for the glory of God. So, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And that word loved there is agape. So, so John is showing us here that Jesus has all the loves for us, right? He has phileo, brotherly, sisterly, friendship, love for us. He has familial love. He has sacrificial, unconditional, agape love for us. Jesus' love keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. In verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, 
he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What a fascinating verse. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, remember Mary and Martha, verse 3, they send to him, Lord, he, he whom you love is sick. And Jesus hears it, and he dilly-dallies. He takes his time. He doesn't rush to the situation. He doesn't rush in to fix it. This is a tricky verse, and it's one that I've personally wrestled with a lot over the past year. We've had some unique struggle and challenges in our life over this past year, and we've been wrestling with God, like, why suffering? Why struggle? Why, when we pray, do you not answer? at least in our timing and in our way. And why do you allow the people that we love to suffer? Don't you love them more than us? God, where are you? Why are you delaying? Why are you pausing? And I love what Paul Carter has to say again on this passage. I'm just going to read it for you. He says, John wants this verse to get our attention. Verse 6. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. John wants this verse to get our attention because this is not how we think. We would like the verse to read, Now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he immediately went. Right? That's what we want. All of us do. But that's not what the text says. And that brings us back to the conundrum. How could it be loving to let them suffer? This might be the most important question in all of the Bible because wrestling with that question forces us into dealing with ultimate things. See, the reality is true love has an eternal perspective, not just an earthly perspective. True love is able to wrestle through these things and say, what is God doing that I might not be understanding There's this old proverb, I don't remember where it comes from, but it's this guy gets a horse, right? And all the neighbors, like in an agricultural setting, and this guy gets a free horse. Everybody's like, oh, that's such a blessing. That horse is going to really help you do your work. And he's like, how do you know it's a blessing? And then the horse breaks its leg, and they're like, oh, that's such a bummer that your horse broke its leg, and and now it can't help you do its work. And he's like, well, how do you know it's not a blessing? And it just goes on and on and on, right? In the momentary the momentary perspective that we have, we don't always see the whole picture. And so this passage is drawing us into this thing of being reminded that God sees in ways that we don't see, that God has power that we don't have power, that God has perspective that we don't have. Jesus let Lazarus die. And he let Mary and Martha grieve so that he could show them the glory of God and grow their faith in him, which is the very thing that grants eternal life. Right, like John tells us that Jesus does all of what he does in order to grow our faith and to give us faith. This is what's happening here in the text. Pick it up in verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you are going there again, and that's at the end of the last chapter, right? The, the, The religious leaders were upset with Jesus yet again, so they were going to stone him. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
And so Jesus, once again, saying he is the light of the world, as he's been saying in John. Anybody who follows me, anyone who works to see through the eyes that I give, that they'll be able to see the deeper things, or at least reserve certain judgments about what's going on to trust me to lead them through the dark nights of the soul. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So he's going to Judea to raise Lazarus. Verse 12, and the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. I just, I love the interaction between Jesus and the disciples, right? He's told them that this illness does not lead to death. And now it has. And he says, I'm going to raise Lazarus. You know, he uses this imagery, which is common imagery, that he's fallen asleep. And now they take him literally. Well, if he's just sleeping, he will wake up again. But the text tells us in verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he, was, that he meant taking rest in sleep. And so if you get confused with some of Jesus' interactions with his people, you're not alone. It's tricky to figure out when is he literal, when, are, when, he, when is he figurative, what's a, what's a metaphor, when is he trying to teach me and stick with it. Come to the scriptures and read and pray and ask questions and read more and read more and think more and, and, and just surrender to God and say, I, this, this is tough to understand. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate it to me? Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And see, there it is again in verse 15. This is for the glory of God. Jesus' primary concern is how can God get the most glory in this situation, not how can I relieve suffering. Now, relief of suffering does come. If you know the story of Lazarus, we're going to get there. He is raised from the dead. He is given new life. But he dies again later. In fact, in 1874, in Bethany, they found a tomb that has Mary and Martha and Lazarus' name sketched onto. So they would put these bodies in a tomb, right? The bodies would decay, and then someone would go in later, and they would take all the bones and put it in a box. So they found the bones of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, these siblings, with their names sketched on it in Bethany. Lazarus still died eventually, right? So the so, so Jesus allows the suffering and the waiting and the grieving process to, to play out for a while, and then he does relieve their suffering by bringing Lazarus back from the dead. But again, death still comes for him. And so Jesus' whole point in this story, in this miracle, and, and in his teaching and his working is to say that physical life isn't ultimate life. It's not the only life. There's something more than this, and he gives them a picture of it. He says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you might believe. But let us go to him. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twelve. We may know him as Doubting Thomas. That's a reputation that he has as the gospels go on. So Thomas called to the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Love that response of Thomas. We don't know, is it a response of zeal or depression? It could be either, right? He could be like, let us go. Let's die with Jesus. If the, if the religious leaders are going to kill him, we're with him. We'll, we'll, where he goes, we will go. I tend to think it's that. It also could just be this like defeatist depression, right? Well, let's just go with him and we'll die too. What's the point? Either way, you see the humanity of Jesus' followers. Thomas, 
walking with Jesus, doubting, belief, faith, and doubt, intermingled, zeal, and depression. We don't know. This is our story. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, so Jesus comes. Jesus comes to his friend's home, his friend's town, his friend's grave. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Some things never change. If you remember Vashek preaching a couple weeks ago from Luke chapter 10, Mary, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet listening. She's a sitter. Martha busy working, preparing the meal. Here, Martha's running to see Jesus. She's trying to do something about the situation. Mary is sitting and reflecting and contemplating and mourning. We're all different, and we need all different types of people. So Martha runs out to Jesus, verse 21, and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it, isn't that so often us? God, if you had done something about this, God, if you had stepped in, Jesus, when I came to you days earlier and told you, why didn't you listen? Why didn't you come? Why did you leave me to grieve? Why did you let my loved one die? Not only did they die, but now I'm dealing with the effects of it. And, it, and I believe in you. You have all power to raise the dead, to heal sickness, to cleanse the leper. Why? This is where Martha's at. And even with that, even with her question, she still has faith, right? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She believes in Jesus' power, yet she's questioning his motives and his perspective. She's comparing it to her perspective and what she thinks would be best. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Look at that faith. Doubt, faith, frustration, grief. It's all intermingled here. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so she's thinking about like that, that, that coming resurrection, right? When Jesus returns or calls us home, the final resurrection. She's saying, yeah, I, I know my brother Lazarus, he trusted you. He followed you. I know that you'll raise him up from the dead. This is a common held belief among some of the Jews not the whole Jewish sect believe in a resurrection after death they did so she's thinking yeah he's dead now and I know that in the future you will raise him from the dead and Jesus said to her I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live see how he's getting at something deeper something eternal something spiritual not just the physical and Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Christian faith is faith in a man. It's faith in a person. It's not adherence to a certain theological creed or a denominational statement of faith. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Again, we all die physically, right? 
Jesus' point here is to get us to think eternally. And in, in our world right now, the American culture, I think we're very naturalistic, right? As a result of enlightenment thinking over the last couple hundred years, we're very naturalistic. And many people don't believe in the afterlife. Yet religions and cultures throughout, throughout history have believed in the afterlife. And a lot of different religions believe in like the transfer of souls. Christian belief is belief in a resurrection of the body. Well, let me pause here just for a moment. Some people get all wonky on their theology and think, well, that's why you can't be cremated. Because if there's a resurrection of the body, you need the bones. But think about a decayed body, a bunch of bones put into a box. Take some, I, no, this is weird, but I got to pause here for a second because it gets pretty weird for some people. Like there's, there's been people who have been, I, I've actually counseled some people from our church who lived in terrifying fear, not knowing what they should do with their loved one's body because they couldn't afford a casket in a burial, but they were told that cremation, that God couldn't raise their loved one from the dead if they were cremated. Like, this is the power of God. He can put dust, ashes, scattered in the ocean back together and resurrect a body. Why? Because he is the resurrection. He is the life. And he's saying here that everyone who believes in me shall never die. Yes, physically you will die. But there is an eternal life. There is a resurrection. There is a new life. Your body will be put back together again. And it will be a resurrection body, as it says in Revelation, without tears or suffering or pain anymore. That old achy body that you're trapped in now will someday run perfectly. We see this. Jesus says, everyone who comes to me, who believes in me, will never die. And he asks Martha, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. This is one of the greatest statements of faith in the scriptures. Now, I'm a part of a denomination. I like theology sometimes, except for when people divide over it. I like having good conversation about theology when there's love and respect. I don't like it when people are like, well, we can't fellowship together again. You should go to this church. I'll go to this church. We've got to... And what I want to do is come back to this statement here, verse 27, where Martha just simply says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one of God. This is the basis of Christianity. A simple confession of faith in Jesus trumps all of our lofty creeds, all of our doctrinal positions, all of the, the man-made laws and categories and boxes that we try to put people in and that we try to put God into. Let Martha's faith encourage your faith in the midst of her grief, in the midst of her questioning Jesus' motives, in the midst of her frustrated that Jesus didn't come sooner, yet still believing that Jesus has power. She just simply says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Jesus is Lord. That is the confession. That's the creed of Christians throughout the centuries. Let's keep going. Verse 28. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord and friend. She falls at his feet in worship 
and she responds to him, Lord. Remember all this language. The people who Jesus loved, Mary and Lazarus and and, and Martha, this deep, connected friendship, and, and their response to him, Lord, you are worthy of our worship. She falls at his feet in worship and desperation, right? She's desperate. Her brother's died. She's been grieving for days. Saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, same response as Martha. Belief in the power of God also baked in their frustration that he didn't come. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. You know how when you see emotion in another person, hopefully, if you're not, like, if you're not a robot, it affects you. And Jesus sees the emotion, the pain, the weeping, and the text tells us he's deeply moved in his inner being and greatly troubled. And he said to them, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture, a profound verse, Jesus wept. The Lord who has power and authority over life and death, the one who knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, doesn't judge their grief. He doesn't give them some trite Christian answer, like, well, you know that he was a follower of mine, so he'll, you'll see him in heaven, don't worry about it. Or he doesn't even say, guys, I've already told you I'm going to raise him from the dead. Do you not listen? He joins them in their grief. He mourns with those who mourn. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him? In Jesus, we see that, we, we see this, this Lord, this master who is worthy of our worship and praise and our dependence. We fall down at his feet and we ask for his help. And yet we also see this relatable friend who grieves when we grieve. He shares in our sorrows and our grief. Jesus feels our emotion he gets our emotion. He shares our emotion. I love this song from the band Wren Collective called Weep With Me. They say, weep with me. Lord, will you weep with me? I don't need answers. All I need is to know that you care for me. Hear my plea. Are you even listening? Lord, I will wrestle with your heart, but I won't let you go. You know I believe. Help my unbelief. Yet I will praise you. Yet I will sing of your name. Here in the shadows, here I will offer my praise. What's true in the light is still true in the dark. You're good and you're kind and you're, you care for this heart. Lord, I believe you weep with me. We see example of that. That God who has all authority and all power condescended in the person of Jesus. And, and he's Lord, worthy of our worship and praise. But he's also friend who feels deeply. Church family, what I want you to see this morning here is that God gets you. He feels you deeply. When you experience pain and sorrow and frustration and suffering, he feels it with you. As the book of Hebrews tells us, we don't have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who can sympathize with everything because he has been tempted as the way, the way that we are tempted. He experienced loss the way that we experience loss. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
they, they, they see Jesus' relational connection. Again, the word love here is phileo. See how he had intimate friendship? See how he was so close to his followers that their pain became his pain? Some of you, some of us, I'll put myself in there, we think that our pain is an offense to God and he's displeased with us because we act out as a result of pain in horrific ways. And yes, as Lord, he needs to be worshipped and we need to repent and we need to turn. But he's Lord and friend. He understands the way that you act out in pain in a far greater way than you or your therapist or your counselor or your pastor or your friend will ever understand it. And he weeps with you and he grieves with you. But he's not only a God who grieves, he's also a God of glory. In Jesus, we see grief and glory coming together perfectly. Verse 37, it says, But some of them said, He could not open the eyes of the blind man. Also, he could have, kept, he could have opened the he uh, Could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? And so they're, they're wrestling with this. In Jesus, we see friend and Lord. I'm going to go through the next couple of verses really quick, and then I'm going to come back to them next week because there, there's so much here um, with the response. So let me just read the end of the story. I'm going to leave kind of the rest of the sermon that I plan to talk through in these verses for next Sunday. I want us to see kind of the end of the story with Lazarus as we then respond, and then we'll kind of dig into some of the resurrection next week. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, deeply moved. He feels our pain. He experiences our pain. He joins our pain. Jesus, again, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus is a Lord who has power over sin and death and the grave. He is the resurrection and the life. Yet he's also a friend who shows up in our grief and our pain and he weeps with us when we weep. I'm going to come back to this portion of the story again next week and dive into it more. This morning, as we come to the table, I want you to approach, I want you for yourself to think about what it looks like to approach Jesus as both friend and Lord, the one who perfectly holds grief and also shows us glory. I want you to try to enter into the story and think about Mary and Martha waiting, grieving, suffering, questioning. I want you to think about your own waiting and grieving and suffering and questioning and spend some time with God on that. And then be reminded by the story that he is also Lord who has authority and power over sin and death in the grave. That he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And this is a foreshadow to Jesus himself walking out of an empty tomb, overcoming sin and death in the grave, not just for Lazarus, but for you and I as well. I'm going to pray and then invite you to the table. If you desire to follow Jesus, these elements are here. The bread representing his body given for you, the cup representing his blood shed for you. He didn't stay dead. He overcame death. He resurrected to new life that you and I could have new life in his name as well. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I thank you that you have overcome sin and death and the grave. I thank you that you are a friend. Lord, I pray that you would empower us through your spirit to come to you as friend this morning and this week to relate to you, to enjoy you, to spend time with you, to laugh with you, to have casual, long, lingering conversations with you. Lord, some of us need our religiosity broken. We need a casual, life-giving interaction with you. Lord, others of us, we might need a a on-our-face time of repentance, acknowledging you as Lord. Lord, all of us need both of those things, but in this moment, this week, we're all in different spots on the journey. So I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at and that you would draw us to yourself as we need to be brought in for our good, for your glory and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name.